G'day, 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 creation. Hey, turn to the person next to you and say, g'day, mate, how you going? Oh, no, 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 we're not having a night like that. Turn to the uh, person on the other side and say, g'day, mate, how you going? Oh, not bad, not bad. Starting to warm up a little bit, that's good. How good was Adam? Can we please give him another hand? I love worship. Hey, I know a lot of people already know this, but for the sake of those who don't, whenever you run into some Aussies or you want to let people know that uh, Aussies are around, there's something that we do, and I know there's people in the crowd that will know this, but all you really need to remember is the word oi, if it is such a word. So on the count of three, I want everyone with your biggest, loudest voices just simply to say oi. One, two, three. One, two, three. When I say Aussie, you say oi. Aussie. Aussie. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. 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 Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Hey, give yourself a hand. That's impressive. I know we've got some Aussies on the lineup this week, so if you want to uh, make them feel really at home at Creation East, then uh, that's all you need to yell out when they get on stage is just Aussie, Aussie, Aussie and they will have a huge smile on their face. If you don't know this, Australians love your accent. Australians love the American accent. If I could take you all with me back to my city, people would want to just sit down and hear you talk. But I have to say there are some words that I've found out that we say a little bit differently. Um, For example, help me out here. So uh, there is a sporting brand that has three stripes, and you have three stripes on your shoes. What's it called? Somebody said Adidas, right? Is that, is that right? It's, turn the person next to you and say, it's Adidas. Adidas. See, it just sounds, it just feels so much better when you say Adidas. What about, uh, there's a, a medal, a shiny silver medal that you wrap food around in. What do you guys call that? Say what? Somebody down here said aluminum foil. It's aluminium foil. So if, if you want to learn how to say it properly, you say aluminium foil. But seriously, there, there's a lot about your country that Australians love. We love a lot of the music that comes out, especially your Christian artists, and a lot of whom you're going to hear this week, obviously Hillsong, Young and Free, for King and Country. Come on. Fantastic Aussies. We also love a lot of... I've got two daughters, an 18 and a 15-year-old, and the 15-year-old is here with me. It's a great privilege for us to be here with you for these few days. And I know my daughters love a lot of the fashion that comes out of your country, as I said, the music. But we do love your food as well because you guys go crazy. Like when you go to a diner or you go somewhere to eat, you guys get free refills. You don't get that in Australia. Uh, You've got to pay for every cup or every bottle, whatever you get. So I think you guys are on a great deal. Um, so there's a lot about your country. We love your movies that come out of here. Uh, are there any uh, Incredibles fans? All right. And what about Wreck-It Ralph is coming out soon? Looking forward to that. It's not out in Australia yet. But are there any Marvel fans? Okay, on the count of three, I want you to yell out who your favourite Marvel character is. On the count of three, there's only one answer to this. One, two, three. All I heard was Thor. Thank you very much. It's Thor. He doesn't have a hammer. Thank you, Groot. We thank Groot for helping Thor out. But what about... uh, What about X-Men, Wolverine, 
obviously two great Aussie actors along with The Greatest Showman, but that's okay. Hey, I don't know if anyone is... I'm going to go a little bit old school, though, when it comes to movies here. I want you to uh, see if you can pick who this guy is, okay? I'm sure you'll pick the, the movie in the first sentence. My name is Gladiator. My name is Maximus Decimus Prudius. Commander, the armies of the north, loyal to the one true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Anyone guess who that is? Russell Crowe, another great Aussie. But hey, I don't know about you, but when, when you're at school, maybe you're still at school and I don't want to put you off, but I've got to be honest, I didn't enjoy history too much at school. It was just one of those subjects that I just couldn't get into. But I have to say, the older I've got, the more fascinated and interested I've got in history. And, and I know you're asking me why. And one of the reasons is, as you look at history, you see the amazing men and women of faith that have actually stood tall and, and confronted serious challenges in their life and persecution that came their way, even martyrdom, and they didn't compromise in their faith. There are some phenomenal stories. Even the Fox's Book of Martyrs is a, is a great kind of description and history of some of the greatest martyrs, men and women of faith, that didn't compromise. <coughs> One of those stories, if you don't know, in the 4th century, there was a short little monk, a guy that basically loved God with all his heart, soul, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself, to the degree that whenever he got anything, if he didn't need it, he would just give it away. And so this little guy named Telemachus, he was five foot nothing. And this guy was living in the fourth century at the peak of the Roman Empire. And whenever the Roman Empire conquered new lands, they would throw a huge festival within Rome. Like it was a crazy days, if not weeks on end of parties and celebrations because of the conquest and the victory that they had won. Anyway, Telemachus, we're told, is somewhere in Asia and he's just doing his thing. He's just tending to his garden and he's keeping to himself and he's loving Jesus and he's just loving his neighbours. And then he senses that God spoke to his heart and God said, Telemachus, I want you to go to Rome. Telemachus had never been outside of his small little village, but he knew the voice of God, he loved God, and he knew that it was important to be obedient to what God had called him to do. Like some of us sitting in this field tonight, or maybe watching online live streaming tonight, you might have had God speak to your heart about something, and tonight I'm telling you, I'm looking for the one. Turn the person next to you and say, he's looking for the one. Turn the person on the other side and say, he's looking for the one. Telemachus was one man. God spoke to his heart and said, I want you to go to Rome. So it took him several weeks to make his way from where he was to get to Rome. Now, this guy had never been to a big city before. I'm not sure if you remember the first time you went to a really big city, but this guy walks into Rome and it's the biggest city that was known to the world at the time. And this place was incredibly advanced, but people from all around the world came to Rome. And Telemachus is starting to get to the outskirts of Rome and he's starting to see buildings and he's starting to see animals that he'd never seen before. Sights and sounds and people of all different shades and colours. And he's seeing all different kinds of food and different activities going on. But there's this great festival going on and Telemachus had this question, God, what am I doing in Rome? Why did you bring me all the way here? I'm not sure. 
So anyway, he gets kind of makes his way closer through and into the heart of the city. And I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd that is so big that even if you wanted to turn around and go the other way, you can't because you're kind of like pressed in. And everybody, whether it's a subway or at a big sporting event, you kind of get into a midst of a crowd and you're just heading in one direction and you can't turn back. Telemachus ended up in a crowd and he gets ushered into this huge building, a building which we now call the Colosseum. And he goes in and there's people everywhere. The Colosseum held 50,000 people. There's 50,000 people jammed into this arena. Telemachus still doesn't know why he's there. He looks down and there's this white raked sand in the arena. Looks around, there's all these flags and there's all this partying going on. And he goes into this Colosseum. He's sitting there and he's going, God, what am I doing here? Then all of a sudden these trumpets sound. And these doors open up on that one level of of the Colosseum. And these guys walk out, who he found out, people told him it was the emperor walks out. So everyone stands up and is cheering. And the emperor stands and accepts the applause and then tells everyone to sit down. Telemachus still doesn't know what's going on. He'd never seen uh, the Colosseum, never seen gladiators fight. But all of a sudden, the trumpets go again. And these gates down on the arena open up. And these guys start to march out and they've got helmets and they've got shields and they've got swords and um, pitchforks and they've got nets and they've got all sorts of weapons. And they walk out and these guys are so big, they're ripped, they're rock hard, they are buff. They make Dwayne the Rock Johnson look small. They are huge, right? They walk out and these guys in lines, they walk out and they stand in front of where the emperor is. They raise their hands and they say, for those about to die, we salute you. Telemachus can't believe what he's hearing. He's seen looking down at these guys and all of a sudden the trumpets go again and then these guys don't even think because they're trained killers. So straight away they just pick somebody to fight with and they start to beat each other, beat the living snot out of each other and they're whacking each other with their swords and their shields and the clash of metal on, on metal is just deafening throughout the arena. People are just crying out, crying out. People are just screaming from baying for blood. Telemachus looks down, he can't believe what he can see. Then one of the gladiators knocks the other guy down, puts his foot on his chest and raises his sword, looks up at the emperor. The emperor stands up and puts his hands up to the crowd and the crowd all put their thumbs down and the gladiator trained to do what he does just simply doesn't think about it but just slices the guy through and his blood spurts out onto the nice white raked sand in the Colosseum. Telemachus is horrified. He's like... That's a person, that's a human life. He believed in the sanctity of life. He believed in the value of every single person, that God loves everybody, that nobody should have to die like that. No one should treat another human being like that. He stands up in the Colosseum and he turns to people next to him and he yells out, for the love of God, stop the killing. No one listens to him. In fact, they swear at him. They tell him to sit down and shut up and just rack off. But Telemachus can't. You know what what he does? Five foot nothing. He goes down to the front fence. He turns around to the crowd and he says, for the love of God, stop the killing. People start throwing stuff at him. Get out of here. We're here to see the gladiators fight as another gladiator dies behind him. So this little Telemachus, like, you know what? He could have given up at that point. But here's where the power of one kicks in. This little guy, he doesn't back down. He doesn't walk away. But he stands up and he suddenly realizes why God spoke to his heart. He was there to save a life. He was there to make a difference. Five foot nothing. He can't do anything. But what this little guy does, believe it or not, he jumps out over the barrier, about eight to ten foot drop. He drops down onto the white rake sand. He runs up to two gladiators that are fighting fiercely. He grabs one of them, but the reflex of the gladiator whacks Telemachus to the ground. He's there on the ground and the crowd are just cheering. (sighs) Because they all think it's part of the show. 
Telemachus gets back up to his feet. He's a bit dazed. He runs back and he stands in between the two gladiators this time and he's like, for the love of God, stop the killing. The gladiator train just punches Telemachus. He goes to the ground. <coughs> the crowd is crying out for blood. The emperor is not sure what's going on. He thinks, well, this must be part of the show. So he stands up to everybody and everybody just drops their thumbs down. And so the gladiator again does what he's trained to do. And he slices Telemachus through and his blood too spills out onto the white right sand of the Colosseum. On top of that, people are kind of like right into it by now. So they're throwing stuff. They're grabbing whatever they can, rocks and bits of stuff, and they're throwing it down on to make sure that Telemachus is dead. But then some historians tell us that not long after, people began to look. <coughs> and they began to actually think, hang on a sec, what's just happened here? And they were told that an eerie silence fell across the Colosseum. And then one by one, people got up and began to walk away. And the Colosseum emptied that day and we're told that that was the last time that gladiators fought in the Colosseum. It's the power of one. It's the power of one person that has a deep conviction of the love of God and the value of human life and the people around us. And if God's spoken to your heart, which I know for many of you in this place, maybe you haven't fulfilled that, that God has spoken into your heart, but I'm looking for the one tonight. I'm looking for that one person, that one man, that one girl, that young man, that young woman in, the, in this field tonight that's willing to hear the voice of God to make a difference for where you go back to. You see, I don't want anybody to miss out. I love stuff that works. I love stuff. I don't want you to miss out on something that has worked. Let me rephrase that. I don't want you to miss out on someone that has changed my life that I want to tell you about. Can we just pray before we go any further? If you're comfortable, just bow your head and close your eyes just for a minute. Heavenly Father, we thank you we get to sit together on this evening and just experience your presence through the worship, the music, the production. Everything is amazing. But Heavenly Father, tonight, we know that if your presence isn't here with us, we're just a social outing. This is just a concert. And Father, I know you want so much more than just a concert. This 40th anniversary of creation, the number 40 is so significant in the Bible for so many reasons. And I know tonight is the start of something significant for the future of each man, woman and child that's in this place tonight. So I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, you'd make Jesus Christ real and alive. Amen. You know, I... I don't know about you, but when I started to suss out the whole God story and the God stuff, I saw people around me that kind of had this relationship with God, but it wasn't real for me. As I said to you, I wasn't into history, but I don't know why, but I did really, really well with the maths, maths physics, science stuff, that kind of stuff. So things had to make sense to me. And things weren't bad at home, but they weren't fantastic. I had a dysfunctional relationship with my dad, not because of any form of abuse, but just simply because he was just never there. It didn't matter what I did, my dad was just never there for me. I achieved some of the highest scores in my state for, for in academically, and, and, and my dad just was never there. In my sport, I achieved the highest levels. I made state sport for, if anyone knows what cricket is, but Australian rules football and things like that. But my dad was just never there, and, and yet my mum and dad were meant to have this relationship with God, and the people in our world were, but it wasn't real for me. And so when I began to look at Jesus' story, now the fact is that we can't argue whether Jesus Christ walked on the planet. That's a fact. All historians will agree that Jesus Christ 
lived, breathed and walked on the planet. The, the question is, do we actually believe what he said he said about himself and about life and about future? C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar or a lord. And as I began to look at the life of Jesus, I went, this guy's either incredibly arrogant, he's really full of himself to make some of the statements that he did, or he's just a full-on crazy man. Because things had to make sense for me. And so when I began to look at some of the words Jesus said, for example, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus made this statement about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. You notice Jesus didn't say a way, a truth, a life. So when I read that about this Jesus guy, I said, well, he's either incredibly arrogant or it's true. It's one or the other, right? And so I'm beginning to think, you know what, if I, if I want a way in life, I'll, I want to know where I'm supposed to be going in my life. If I want to know the way, then Jesus is saying that he's the way. If I'm looking for truth, and the world will offer us so much versions of the truth, and there is elements of truth, we can find that everywhere, but the truth. Jesus is saying he is the truth, not a truth. And I don't know about you, but when I live life, I want to live life, and I want to live it to the full. So Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and I am the life. And that kind of got my attention, because when I read that, in parallel to another, another verse in the book of John, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus said, and this is what got my attention, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and life to the full. Now, at this time, I'm playing football as hard as I can. I'm surfing and skating as hard as I can. I'm living life as hard as I can. I'm going to myself, well, if Jesus is saying that he can give me life to the full, that's either true or it's not. But it said before that, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I know that some of us might have the, the idea that, you know, maybe God is kind of like some big dude that sits on a big chair up in, up in the clouds somewhere with he's got a big white beard and, and he's got the long flowing white hair and he sits there with a bolt of lightning in, our hand, in his hand just waiting for us to stuff up. Maybe that's, that's kind of our picture of God and, and we kind of think that maybe... God is going to speak in that voice like James L. Jones, Darth Vader. Do you know what I mean? We all kind of think God speaks with, this is God. I mean, we do, don't we? We just think that God's got this really deep baritone voice. It's like, Phil, you've been a very naughty boy. And he's going to throw a bolt of lightning and fry my butt kind of thing. You know, that's kind of like how we think. But could you imagine if we get to heaven, and I pray we all do, that if we go up to him and say, oh, Hey, God, how you doing? We're all expecting. Good, thank you. But what if God turns around and he goes, G'day, mate, how are you? It's going to mess with our heads, right? But we have this understanding of who God is, but he's not like that. And I'll come to that in just a minute. But Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Let me ask you a question. I ask this wherever I go around the world. Was there ever a day you were more in love with Jesus Christ than you are today? Think about it. I don't, I, I'm not interested in what position you hold. I'm not interested in how long you've been a Christian. None of that. I'm just asking you, was there ever a day you were more in love with Jesus Christ than you are today? And if there was, can I ask you what happened? Can I ask you who happened in your life that disappointed, that hurt you, that betrayed you, that lied to you? Can I, can I just remind some of us tonight that 
the Jesus that we love so passionately and serve so passionately with our lives six months, 12 months, five, 10 years ago, that, that Jesus, he hasn't changed. Guess who's changed? We have. Was there ever a day that you might be... Jesus is saying that, that there's, there's, a, there's a devil that comes along and he wants to steal, kill and destroy. He wants to rob you of the life, the joy, the peace, the purpose, the satisfaction that he died on the cross for you and I to live with. And it's not like he rocks up to your front door one morning with, you know, horns on his head and black and red cape with a pitchfork and press your doorbell and you open it up and you're kind of waking up and you just, oh, and the devil's there going, hey, mate, I've come to rob some of the joy that Jesus gave you. And by, while I'm at it, I just want to take some of that peace and, you know, I'm just going to throw a little bit of torment at you and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just going to mess with your life a little bit. Like, He's incredibly subtle. I know nobody here has ever had this problem, but I'm talking about being a subtle process. The enemy comes and he robs and he steals us of the life that Jesus died that we could experience. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this, but you know, you don't go to bed one night and you're sitting at 170 pounds and then next morning you wake up and suddenly you're 220. Right? It just doesn't happen like that, does it? It happens because we make a whole series of dumb choices and we eat the wrong foods, we don't move enough, and so we gradually, slowly sort of like have to move the belt out one more notch. It's a, it's a slow process. You know what they actually say? That if you put a frog into a boiling pot of water, it'll jump out. But if you put the same frog into a cold pot of water and heat it up slowly, that frog will stay in there until it boils to death. Please don't try that. All right, don't do it. I don't know who the person is that did that experiment, but they're messed up. But the point is, is that these things actually happen slowly. Was there ever a day you were more in love with Jesus? Because today I'm looking for one man. I'm looking for one woman. I'm looking for one person in this field tonight. And I believe that there is more. So there's one that comes to steal and rob from us. And I believe there are people sitting or standing in this field where you've been ripped off. And that is not God's purpose or design for your life. And maybe tonight, if not tonight, then maybe at some point over this festival, over creation 18, I've been praying, fasting for you guys. If your divine appointment, if your God moment doesn't happen here tonight, that at some point God has a divine appointment set up for you. Whether it's going on the seven station prayer walk, whether it's hanging out and listening and, and entering into the worship that happens here or at one of the other stations, our God is big enough and crazy enough and reckless enough to love us enough that he would actually want to have a divine encounter and appointment with every single one of us that is here at this festival. And if you believe that, say amen. And if you don't believe it, God loves you anyway and he still wants to have an encounter with you. You see, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full, life abundant. That's the kind of life I want. You know, I, I read, this, read this particular author, Linda Ellis, and she writes about people that are grieving and she wrote these words. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on his coffin from the beginning to the end. He noted first was his date of birth, but spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that he spent alive on earth and now only those that loved him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and how we love and how we spend our dash. 
And some of us are spending our dash being ripped off, so focused on what's happened in behind us and what's happened in the past that we cannot change and we cannot do anything about it. We're missing out on the future that God has laid out before us. Tonight, maybe I'm speaking into your situation, your circumstance. I don't want to see you getting ripped off. I want to see you experience life and life to the full that Jesus has paid the price for us. I don't know about you, but just because I talk about life to the full, I want to be honest. I want to be upfront with you. Because when we commit our lives, we invite Jesus Christ to come into us and we receive the abundant life that I'm talking about here. And by abundant life, I mean that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a joy, even in the midst of the hellish storms that we will go through in life. When everything is going wrong, that there is a sense of security and stability and calm in my life. Even though everything around me is falling sand and there's a storm going on, I have an inner peace that it doesn't make sense that God gives us. That's part of the abundant life. That we can discover why we're on this green and blue ball we call earth to have purpose and meaning and find out what real satisfaction is about. So just because we become Christians doesn't mean we won't have stuff happen in our lives. Turn the person next to you and say, stuff happens. I don't know about you, but have you ever had those kind of conversations with God where you just go, God, why? Why did this happen? Why has this happened? I, I was... Uh, my daughter, one of my, one of my daughters, when she was in grade six, which is the last year of primary school for us before we go into high school in Australia in year seven, but grade six, I was, a, I was a, actually allowed to go as a parent helper on the camp. So we're there with all the kids and there were teachers there and there was a couple of other dads on this camp to help out. And the school representative at the camp was the assistant principal of the school. Now, a very important lady and kind of very, you know, in a position of great respect and responsibility. So we're sitting down and having dinner uh, on one of the nights and I'm sitting next to one of the dads next to me and he, he's not a Christian, that doesn't matter, but like the assistant principal got up, walked off to deal with some kids that were mucking around and it wasn't my daughter for a change, which was a good thing, right? So, but she gets up and when she gets up to go to walk off, she leaves her phone on the table and I've kind of like just gone, oh yeah. So I've turned, I've turned to the dad next to me, I go, hey mate, how cool would it be if we set the alarm for the assistant principal at 3 a.m.? How good would that be? He's like, are you kidding me? I go, no, nah, we've got to have a crack, right? We've got to, we've got to have a go at this. So I pick it up, and, I, and being an iPhone, I swipe it open. And, of course, the pin lock's on, right? And he's gone, oh, a few swear words, which I won't say. And he's just gone, oh, mate, well, well, we tried. I go, no, we didn't try. We've got to have a go. So I just kind of go, bang. First four numbers that come into my mind, bang. The phone opens up, dead set. Like, he says a whole bunch of words that I wouldn't say, and he's just like, what the... And then like, yeah, mate, how, why, whatever. And he's going, mate, this is awesome. He goes, oh, we'll set the alarm for 3, 4, and 5 a.m. for the assistant principal. And I've gone, good idea. And this guy, like, well, he was sleeping over. I actually drove home that night, so he had to actually wake up to the assistant principal next, the next morning. So that, that's, that was his problem, not mine. But you might be sitting or standing here just going, mate, what's the relevance of that story? Seriously. The most poignant question that that dad asked me, he said, Phil, why did you choose those four numbers? And to this day, as true as I stand here now, if my math serves me correctly, right, for me to get those four numbers right on, my on, on the assistant principal's phone, it's a one in 10,000 chance. 
for me to get that right, the probability of me getting that right. And he asked me, why did I choose those numbers? And as true as I, st I still don't know why the postcode from my area came into my mind that I would actually type that into the phone. I, I still can't answer why. Do you know what? I think there are going to be certain things that happen in our lives, certain things that happen to us and around us that we won't get the answer maybe that we need or want this side of eternity. But one thing that I have to hold on to, I have so much of God's faithfulness, not just in my own life, but the story that I referred to just before and so many other thousands of stories of God's faithfulness and that He does heal and that He doesn't let people down, that He will not forsake us or leave us. I've got so much to hold on to that when I'm faced with my problems, and trust me, I've got a lot, a lot of stuff that I've had to deal with, a lot of situations to, to walk through that have been tough and they've been hard with that question called why. If you've got a question called why in your mind that you're crying out to God, don't be afraid to ask it. God's got big enough shoulders. He can handle our why. You see, we look at situations and we see it from the bottom side. I've heard it described this way, that we see it from the bottom side of a tapestry, a blanket that's being made and stitched from the other side. And from our side, when we look up at it, there's just all threads and it looks like an absolute mess and it doesn't look like really anything. But from God's side, when he's looking at the other way, when he's stitching and he's making the picture and he's making the, the tapestry and he's putting it all together and he's stitching, he's got a plan and he's building and he's creating and he's making something beautiful and amazing. Can I encourage you, don't let go. Tomorrow holds the answer to the problem that you face today. You won't find the answer looking more and more into the darkness. Darkness cannot expel darkness. Only the light can do that, Martin Luther King said. So for us, if you're facing a why, and I believe we all will at some point of our lives, can I ask you, don't look deeper into the problem, but look to the light, look to Jesus. So we have these questions called why. You know, as a pastor, one of the big questions that I get asked quite often is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus die? I mean, that's a, that's a valid question, I reckon. That's one that I had to think through when I was looking at all this stuff too. Now, I need your help. Everybody, I need your help for just a second. I want you to imagine that this side of the stage, okay, over here, my right, your left, is nothing but pure evil. There is nothing but the darkest of darkness. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no love. It's just anger and violence and hate and envy and greed. All the most horrible things uh, to the maximum degree is over this side of the stage. Over this side of the stage, my left, your right, is pure good. Everything, love, joy, peace, fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, meaning. Uh, everything that you need is over here. There is no evil, there is no, 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 no anger, there is no pain, no suffering, anything here. So if God is over here and the devil and his kingdom is over that side, the kingdom of darkness is over that side, I want you to imagine in your mind for just a second to draw a line from over there to where God is. Now, if I could invite you all to come up and stand on the stage, which we can't, but I want you to try and visualize where would you put yourself along this continuum? Where would you place yourself? I'm not talking about how we want to project ourselves and how we want everybody to think we are. I want us to be honest in our hearts right now. Where would I actually stand on this line? You know, some of us might say, you know what, Phil? I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good bloke, you know, kind of, yeah, I cheated a little bit and stole and haven't been fully legit with my taxes and I've done some wrong things. But, you know, I've also done some good things. I'm not all bad. There might be some of you that are, 
kind of like just going, Phil, you have no idea, dude. Like seriously, if, if I could open up who I really am and what's happened to me and what I've been through and what I've seen and what I look at on the internet and what I'm involved in and some of the stuff that I've done and how I think in my mind, I'd be closer to this end of the spectrum. And then there might be some of us that just have been incredibly blessed and maybe we've kind of had a great stable family and we've had good role models and we've had good input into our lives and we say, you know what, I'd be closer down this end. You know what, I really haven't done much bad in my life. I've, I've made a few mistakes and things, but you know, and, and let me just say for a second, if, if anyone thinks that they're standing here where God is, psychologists call that a Messiah complex. And there's actually medication you can take for that, but we'll talk about that later, right? But I want you all just for a minute to try to work out where on this continuum would you stand? The reality is for every single one of us here in this field tonight, where we stand and where God is, there's a gap. There's a gap between where we stand and where God is. No, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, which tells us that anyone that's had a mother has sinned, born into, because we've been born in Adam's line, the guy that the original sin happened in the garden that created the separation between humanity and God and the relationship was fractured and broken. And not just physical death, but spiritual death entered the world when Adam did that way back when. And so, yes, we're born into sin, but all the wrongs that we have done, we all have fallen short. Guess what? I want to let you in on a secret. Even your pastors have sinned. I know that's a bit of a horrendous thought, right? But it's true. Every one of us has sinned. And the Bible tells us it a little bit further in Romans 6.23 that the wages, the penalty of sin is death. So those things that separate us from a perfect God and create the gap from where we are and where God is, there's a penalty, a price that needs to be paid. Now, I don't know about you, but in Australia, if you speed and you get caught by the popo, you're going to get a fine and you lose some points on your license. Or if you park in the wrong place and, and you get caught, you get a ticket. So if you break the law, then you have to pay the fine. There's a fine that you have to pay. And the same held true with our humanity's relationship with God. That for every single one of us, there's a gap between where we are and where God is. And the Bible tells us that there is nothing that you and I could ever do to bridge that gap between where we are and where God is. I don't care how ripped and rock hard and buffy and chiseled you are. You can't be fit enough, strong enough, fast enough to run and jump to bridge the gap between where you are and where God is. You can't be smart enough to build a bridge, a program, an app or anything that can kind of like design your way to somehow get over to where God is. It doesn't matter how much cash and coin you have. You can't buy your way across. You can't bribe your way across. The Bible says there's nothing that we could do. But because God is a God of love, in the Old Testament, He put things into place so that the children of Israel, His chosen people, could stay in right relationship. See, God is a holy, righteous God, so He won't tolerate sin. So He actually put into place all these sacrifices and offerings that were required that they had to do every year over and over again so they could actually have right relationship with God. God was incredibly benevolent to allow humanity to stay in relationship with him after they stuffed it up in the garden. And so the question is, why did Jesus have to die? You see, for all of humanity, there is a gap between where we are and where God is. And God has said, like, you know what? The sacrifices that we do over and over again, I'm going to put an end to that once and for all. But to be able to pay the ultimate price, to be able to pay the debt, 
the cost of my sin between where I am and where God is. It would have to be a perfect sacrifice. And it's where Jesus comes into it. Because the Bible says that Jesus walked on the planet. We talked about that, made some bold claims about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But they also said that Jesus was sinless when he walked on this planet. He was perfect in every way. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. And that Jesus Christ was the only one that was worthy enough to bridge the gap, to pay the price, to pay the debt that we could never pay. You see, sometimes I think we take for granted the grace of God. See, the grace of God is his favor and kind to us, kindness to us that we don't deserve. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, it gives us a quick story about the magnitude of our sin. You see, to understand the bigness of God's grace, we have to understand the bigness of our sin, all of us. And there was one guy that owed his master 10,000 talents. Doesn't sound like much, right? But if we were to convert that into today's economy, that would equate to over $16 billion. So Jesus is using this story to try and get people's attention to go, this was a debt that no one could ever pay. And I think that if Jesus was on the planet and he was telling the story now, he'd probably use it in the words of trillions of dollars that this person owed to his master. So we all know this guy couldn't pay, but the master turns around and says, you know what, forget about it. I'm going to wipe that debt clean. You go out and actually you can live your life free. I'm sure this guy was pretty stoked. He would have been pretty happy when he found out that the master had actually forgiven him of that massive debt. We know that this clown goes out to somebody that owes him literally like $20, doesn't forgive him, has the guy beaten up and thrown into jail. The master finds out and says, listen, I just forgave you this massive debt and you can't even forgive somebody a small debt. You see, we have to understand the magnitude of our sins so we can appreciate the magnitude of God's grace. And that price was paid through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross. So we're told that, again, the Easter story, right? We do it every year. But what actually happened on that answers the question of why did Jesus die? Because there's nothing else that could bridge the gap between where I stand on that line and where any of us stand. There was only one thing, there was only one person that could bridge the gap, and that's Jesus Christ. And he gave his life willingly for you and I. And when he was hanging on that cross, he was thinking of you. When he was hanging on that cross, he was thinking of you guys. When he was hanging on that cross, he was thinking of all of us in this field tonight, letting us know how much he loved us. And do you know how much he loves us? This much. And Jesus Christ bridged the gap between where we stand and where God is. And the Bible says that if we're willing to confess with our mouth that what Jesus did on the cross was more than enough because Jesus said some words on the cross. He says, it is finished. In the Greek, which it was written in, that means the debt has been paid for in full. In full. So what Jesus Christ did on the cross paid for our sin, all of humanity's sin, once and for all. And so if we confess with our mouth that we believe that and we believe it in our heart, we will be born again. We will be saved. And His Spirit will come and live within us. And we can start to experience a relationship with the Creator of the universe and start to walk in the abundant life that I've been talking about. And so that answers the question of why did Jesus do it? For me, the next question was, why would Jesus do it? Talk about why did, but let's talk about why would Jesus do that. It's really simple. 
This is not complicated at all, but sometimes we miss it and we overcomplicate it. But the simple answer is love. Turn the person next to you and say love. Did it all for love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did it for love. And I know sometimes it's really hard because we, we kind of like just say, it just rolls off the tongue, God loves you. God loves you. Let, let me just say something that will probably mess with your head right now. There is nothing that you and I have ever done to merit, to warrant God's love. There is nothing we could ever do. There is nothing about us that warrants God's love. Can, can I just say this to you? And I want you to think about this. God loves you because he loves you. God loves you because he loves you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing bad enough to make him love you less. He loves you because he loves you. God is love. You see, Jesus used stories to try to explain to us because he's taking spiritual principles. He's taking infinite, eternal principles and he's trying to communicate them in a way that our finite minds can grasp. We actually go, oh, now I get what you're talking about. So let me just tell three quick stories that Jesus used to try to explain to us the magnitude of God's love for us. See, the first story is this lady had 10 coins. And those coins were the most precious thing. She didn't have anything else, but she, all she had was 10 coins. Every day she would take those coins out, she'd polish them and buff them up and she'd put them on the table and count them. One day she pulls them out and there was one missing. She goes into a panic, I've lost a coin, I've lost a coin. She starts looking around a small unit trying to find the coin. Where's my coin? I can't find my coin. She goes out to the neighbours. She goes, hey guys, have you seen my coin? And the answer is no. The neighbours haven't seen the coin. She goes back in and she's almost lost hope. And in desperation, she starts to scream out. But she's got a pet cat in the corner of her, her little bedroom, her little unit. She yells out, where's my coin? She yells so loud that the cat in the corner jumps up out of the corner and runs out of the room and the coin's underneath the cat. She goes and grabs the coin and she's like, yes, I found my coin. She goes out and tells her neighbours, guys, I found my coin. We're going to have a party. Yes. The next story that Jesus tells is about a guy that had 100 sheep. And this guy, he knows all of his sheep and they know him as the shepherd you know, we've got lots of sheep that are in this, this pen. There's a hundred sheep there and he'd count them every night. He'd have names for them all. He's got Angie, he's got Preston, he's got Adam, he's got Marissa, he's got April, he's got Ruby, he's got Jackie, he's got Bill, he's got Ben, he's got Scotty, he's got Bobby. He's got all these sheep that he knows them all by name. And he's looking through, then all of a sudden he gets to 99 and then guess what? One missing. He goes, that little Johnny. Johnny, he goes over to the other shepherds and he's like, hey boys, have you seen Johnny? Johnny's done a runner, do you know where he's at? And the shepherds go, no, we, we haven't seen him. Mate, just forget about him, don't worry about it. He goes, no, I, I have to find Johnny. So he puts the 99 in the pen and he starts to go out. It's getting dark and there's clouds and there's lightning and there's thunder. And he's starting to get worried and he's yelling out, Johnny, Johnny. And the wolves are coming out. And he's just about to give up because the storm's coming in. He yells out one last time, Johnny. Guess what he hears? Bah. He goes, Johnny. He knows his voice. He runs and he's going, Johnny. And it's like, bah. 
Johnny, bah! Johnny, bah! He finally gets to Johnny who's stuck between two rocks trying to get his leg out. And the shepherd looks down. Oh, Johnny. Johnny looks up and goes, bah! Picks him up. Puts Johnny on his shoulders. Takes him back to, to the others. Tells all the other shepherds, hey, guys, guess what? I found Johnny. We're going to have a barbecue. No, no, no. Beef, not lamb, right? The last story Jesus tells is about a father who has two sons. The youngest son who thinks he's God's gift, he's got plenty of attitude and he just thinks he's eating a bit, goes up to his dad and he goes, hey dad, you're not dead yet, but I want my inheritance. And the dad goes, this is not a good idea, but because I love my son and love should be a choice. I want him to love me because he chooses to, not just because I've got something he wants. So he gives him the money and the, and the Bible says that the young son takes off, goes to a faraway land and starts to live a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And as long as he's got the money, he's got the friends. As long as he's got the money, he's having the so-called good times. But we're told that every single day, the dad is sitting on his rocking chair, looking out, just wanting his son to come home. Son, I just wish my son would come home. Meanwhile, the son loses all the money, loses all the friends, loses all the money, loses all the so-called good times, ends up feeding slops to pigs in a pig pen. And he's there and he's just like smelly and dirty and he's broken and he's messed up and he knows he's done the wrong thing. He knows he's hurt his dad and he, and he has this light bulb moment where he goes, oh man, even the servants in my dad's house don't get treated this bad. Maybe, maybe I could just like say, sorry dad, and he'd have me come back and I could be a servant in his house. And so throws his corn cob down and gets out of the pig pen and he starts to make the long journey home. Meanwhile, dad is on his rocking chair, still looking out every day, just longing for his son to come home. This kid makes his way home and he's starting to rehearse his apology. Dad, I'm sorry I stuffed up. I know I've hurt you really badly. I just, please forgive me, mate. Can I just be a servant in your house? He's getting closer and dad's on his rocking chair and he, he's looking out and he can see the shape of a man start to form on the horizon. It's getting closer and he starts to realize, I know that walk. I know who that is. He gets up out of his chair, runs down the path, out the gate, starts running down the road. The son sees the dad running at him and like his dad's got his arms in the air. The son doesn't know whether dad's going to punch him in the head, tell him to rack off. He doesn't know what's going to go on. So his heart's just beating so fast. What's going to happen? He's trying to rehearse his apology. Dad, I'm so sorry. Dad gets really close and you can see his dad's got his arms up. And just when he thinks his dad's going to hit him, he starts off with his apology. Dad, I'm sorry. But dad doesn't hit him. Dad grabs him. Smelly, stinky son who actually hurt him so deeply. Wraps his arms around him and the son's like, Dad, I'm so sorry. And the dad just says, son, it's okay. I've already forgiven you. Come on home. Let's get you cleaned up. We're going to have a party. I want to tell you tonight that you're more valuable than a coin. That in some way, all of us in some way, maybe have been like or are like Johnny or are like the prodigal son. And I'm just looking for the one tonight. I'm looking for the one that would say, you know what? I want to come home to Jesus. My last story that I want to share with you tonight, because tonight, here at the 40th anniversary of creation, there's a story about 40 Roman soldiers in 320 AD, a well-documented story. Licinius was the co-emperor with Constantine at the time. And Licinius was a guy that was really sneaky and shady and he would do anything to undermine Constantine, so and that included persecuting Christians. 
And so they'd won a great victory. And so he'd put this guy named Agricola, the governor, over the particular area. And he said to Agricola, we're going to have a big party for the victory we've just had. But one of the spokesmen, there were 40 soldiers, 40 soldiers that stood up and they said, we will not bow down. We will not worship Roman gods. We will not make sacrifices. We will only bow down and worship Jesus in 320 AD. And so Agricola said, you know what, if you guys want to do that, you know the penalty for disobeying a, a law, uh, a, an order by a, a Roman official is that you'll be flogged, you'll be persecuted, if not die. And they said, there is nothing that you can offer us that can take away the glory that awaits us. So 40 Roman soldiers were whipped and their backs torn to shreds, thrown into prison. And then there was a, uh, the actual uh, commander of the 12th Legion, uh, Lysias, actually came after two days of travel. And he, he had to address his men, his re rebellious men. And he had to say to them, if you don't actually turn from this Jesus and bow down and worship and offer sacrifices to Roman gods, you will surely die. And the spokesman spoke up and he said, well, we will surely die because we will not compromise our faith. And at that moment, a cold wind blew and there was a frozen lake. So uh, like Lysias actually ordered the men to be stripped naked and to go and stand out on the pond to die. To their amazement, to the other Roman soldiers' amazement, these guys stripped down themselves and they voluntarily walked out onto the ice. And they began to sing hymns of praise to God, saying, we will not compromise. And they're freezing, they're shivering. Lysias commanded warm bars to be put around the perimeter of the pond to try and tempt them off, but not one budged. One of the Roman soldiers late in the night by now had this vision of just angels carrying crowns above the 40 soldiers. And he's telling the other soldiers, can't you see what you, can you, can you see what I'm seeing? The, 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 the angels with the crowns and the other soldiers said, no, we can't. And he goes, I can see it as one of the soldiers crawled off the ice. So there was 39 out on the ice now, not 40. And these friends, thinking they were helping, grabbed him and they put him into one of the warm bars. But one of the worst things you can do with someone with frostbite, he went into convulsions and that guy died. But the man that had the vision said, there cannot be 39, there has to be 40. So he too stripped off naked and he went and stood with the other guys who were shivering. And they tried to sing hymns until early morning they came back to find the 40 soldiers had all died on the ice. They would not compromise their face. They would not bow down. They would not turn their, for their lives from following Jesus. Tonight, I'm looking for the one. I'm looking for the one, maybe like Telemachus, I'm looking for the one that's never given their life to Jesus. Tonight, you've heard, why did Jesus do it? And tonight, you've heard, why would Jesus? And that's because he loves you and I so much. Is there one in this field tonight where you go, Phil, that's me. That's me. I've never asked Jesus to come into my life. I want to make a stand. I want to live my life abundantly as Jesus promised. And to do that, the Bible says, as I said to you, Romans 10.9 says we are to confess with our mouth, believe in our heart. For it's with our heart that we believe and we are justified. And it's with our mouth that we confess and we are saved. Tonight, I'm asking, is there one in this field tonight? You've never given your life to Jesus. He's the only way to assurance of eternal life, to abundant life that we're talking about. Can I just ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed? Just for a few moments. I have two questions. The first is, I'm looking for the one, but I know there's more than one. That you have never asked Jesus to come into your life. You've never accepted what he did upon the cross to bridge the gap between where you are and where God is to come into right relationship with God. 
You've never done that. I want to give you that opportunity tonight. The second group of people that I'm asking a question to, I'm asking you for those, there was a day that you were more in love with Jesus than you are today. Something or someone has happened in your life and tonight you've kind of been reminded, going, hang on a sec, there is something that is not quite right. I've been ripped off. The thief has come and stolen some of my life, my purpose, my direction, my joy, stolen some of the peace that God has given me. You're the second group of people. Just as heads are bowed and eyes are closed in this field tonight and we're almost done. I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment. If you're in either one of those categories. And we've had people that have prayed through this field, prayed over this area. And tonight, this whole field is now an altar. So if you're a youth pastor, a youth leader, or a leader, I'm going to ask those people to stand in just a moment. And so what I need is the body of Christ to move to action in just a moment. If anyone in your group or your church group or your group stands in just a moment and you're a pastor, a youth leader, youth pastor, a leader, once they've stood, I'm going to ask you to stand and go and stand with them and pray with them for just a few moments. But that first group of people, you've never asked Jesus to come into your life. And tonight you understand that's why Jesus did it and that's why he would do it because he loves you. If that's you tonight, on the count of three, I just want you to stand. Wherever you are in this field, say, yes, Phil, I just, for the first time ever, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. On the count of three, don't stand unless you mean it. One, two, three. Stand. People all over this place, just stand up wherever you're at. Yeah. People standing up. You've never done this before. You've never prayed to ask Jesus to come into your heart. See people standing up around this field right now. The best decision you could ever make with your life. Just stand up where you're at. Best decision. God bless you. There's others. If that's you, just stand where you're at right now. The second group of people are those that you know there was a day you were more in love with Jesus and you know you need to get things right. And in this moment, now's your time. On the count of three, I want you to stand with the others that are already standing. On the count of three, one, two, three, stand. If that's you, stand right now. God bless you. God bless you. That's it. People standing up all over this field. Matthew 10 tells us if we have the courage to stand before our fellow man, Jesus will make a stand before us, before the Father. Right now is your opportunity to enter into this weekend of worship and connection with God in right standing with Him. You don't need to carry guilt and shame into the rest of this week. If that's you, stand right now. We're almost done. Don't miss this moment. That's it. I know there's more. Last time I'm going to ask. Just stand. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Right now, if you're a youth pastor, a youth leader, a pastor, and you've got people in your group that are standing right now, I want you to have a look around. I want you to go stand with them and start to pray with them. Just encourage them. Those that have made a first making that first time commitment, pastors, youth pastors, leaders, just take them through that prayer of inviting Jesus into their life and forgiving them of all their sin. Come on, let's move to action. Let's make sure that nobody is standing alone here, guys. Come on. This is where the family of God comes to action. Let's stand right now. Let's go to those that are standing. Come on, make sure no one's standing alone.
If you're still seated, would you just pray with me for those that are standing? Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that there is not one person here that's by accident at this festival. You've got a plan and a purpose for every single person. Heavenly Father, for those that have made a stand today for the first time, thank you that there is a party, there's a celebration going in heaven right now. Lord God, as they confess you as Lord and Savior of their life right now, and they invite you in. You forgive them of all those wrongs and the gap is bridged between where they were and where you are right now. They're in restored relationship with you. Thank you for those that have stand to make a recommitment here tonight. Just thank you for your peace that is just flooding their souls. I thank you for purpose and joy and life that's flooding their life right now in Jesus' name. Just want to let all leaders and pastors know, if you need any resource at all, if you need uh, any Bibles or you need uh, uh, anyone to talk through any more after this session, we've got a prayer tent over to my left, your right couple of blue flags, the white tent over there. You are most welcome to make your way over there and they'll love to give you some Bibles and materials, let you know where to from here so you can leave this festival well-armed and equipped, knowing you're incredibly loved by God and a whole bunch of other people. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's give the Lord a hand tonight, shall we? It's good to be able to hear the word of God. Amen. I said it's good to be.